Taken captive and then shipwrecked on an inhospitable hellscape of ice, Georgie sees no way of survival. When she embarks on a last-ditch effort for help, she's caught and found by one of the inhabitants of this cold world. As it turns out, she can save him just as much as he can save her. I'm Heather Songster, and this is Hopelessly Romantic. Welcome back, readers and romance seekers, to another episode. I have missed you all so much. I have missed reading ridiculous books, and I have missed sharing them with you. All I can say is it's been life getting in my way. I refuse to be defeated, though, and I will stubbornly cling to this silly little project of mine in any way that I can. So I'm going to do everything in my power to make this work, because I love doing this, and I don't want to stop. All right, mushy stuff out of the way. Let's get going with today's choice of literature. We are reading, at last, Ice Planet Barbarians by Ruby Dixon. No, no one was asking me to read this. I know that I am late on the book talk bandwagon, but I caught sight of it in the bookstore and something in me sort of snapped, I guess. I basically said, fuck it, and took it home. I like to make a note of firsts on my podcast, and I want to do the same here. Ice Planet Barbarians was the first non-human erotic novel that I've read for the podcast. I've spent more than 10 minutes on the internet, so I am well aware that monster boinker novels are absolutely a thing, and I have zero judgments for the genre. Because of the limitations that I'd put on myself for the podcast, especially the one about being able to purchase a hard copy as a requirement, I've not really had a lot of opportunity to review any novels of this particular nature. And I have to be honest, I was kind of scared. I'm not afraid to use that particular terminology because, I mean, I was. I'm personally uncomfortable with the idea of non-humans taking human partners, especially women. I'll chalk this up to ages of aliens or inhuman creatures take a woman by force trend that is basically littered all over our media. You know the kind that I'm talking about. I am not really down for reading whole stories of women being taken against their will to become sex slaves for aliens or monstrous creatures. But I am here to open my mind to see what can be found. And if Ice Planet Barbarians can help me bridge the gap between erotic romance and very popular monster boinker novels, then I'm willing to give it a shot. The copy I'm holding in my hands is a special edition, which contains both an added epilogue and a special note from the author at the back. That itself was kind of fascinating to me, because as best as I could figure, this was a sleeper hit that took the internet, TikTok specifically, by storm. We love a grassroots surprise success, so let's go ahead and get into it. Our author is Ruby Dixon. According to the blurb in the back, she describes herself as boring. And I feel like that's a very bold move to declare oneself as boring, but I won't fault her for it. Talking about myself in a positive light is something of a challenge, and if I'm salty, it's because she got to use the tactic before I did. Boring or not, Dixon is a prolific writer. I really do love going into these novels blind as I possibly can, and only doing my research on the author until I'm done with the book because getting my perceptions absolutely blasted apart sometimes is such an amazing feeling. She has at least 130 novels, according to Goodreads, and that's a number that completely gobsmacked me when I found it. 
I figured that Ice Planet Barbarians was a runaway hit, a fluke. I, I don't mean that as an insult. It's just a story that I've heard so many times. Some random person writes a story, it gets hugely popular literally overnight, and then they spend their career chasing the high of their first hit. I am happy for authors when this happens. They get to have some fun, people love their work, and they gain readers that would have never have heard of them had it not been for their viral success. I don't envy them the pressure to follow up their hits, but still I am happy for them. They either now have the resources to continue their work in earnest, or they have the option of going into the West to enjoy themselves however the heck they want. As far as Miss Dixon goes, she has a set of novellas called The Bedlam Butcher's Club that began in 2014, which I believe features a motorcycle gang, but without reading them, I really can't be sure. Ice Planet Barbarians began in 2015 in a serialized format, and judging from what I can gather from a quick glance at her canon of work, she's found her niche in alien romance and ran with it. Again, good for her. The book I have was published in 2021, and even the dedication remarks on the surprise runaway success of this book. And I want to talk about this cover. Oh my god, this cover is phenomenal. Even if I knew absolutely nothing about Ice Planet Barbarians, this cover would have caught me hook, line, and sinker. The artwork is gorgeous, smooth, clean lines, vivid colors, and the title printed in a way that reminds me of those old sci-fi B-movie posters, which is appropriate considering our subject matter. We see our heroine, standing proudly in profile, wrapped in blue furs and holding a spear, her hair swirling around her in the wind, ice and snow clinging to the strands. Behind her, we see a slightly obscured male figure. I use the term male because he is clearly not human. We can't see his face, but we see his bare chest, long black hair, and a tail that snakes around the woman in the front. The art style is reminiscent of Art Nouveau, but I'm not in any way an art expert, so that's the closest style that I can kind of hit on. If I have any complaints, it's the fact that we still get a hint of cleavage on the woman, even though she's standing in profile, but whatever. The cover is so goddamn good that I don't care. If we peek at the back cover, we get a small doodle of what our alien hero looks like, but not in full detail. It's small, but at least we get more of an idea of what this guy looks like, horns included. And it's thanks to this amazing cover that I finally get to see what's inside these pages, and I cannot wait another moment. Our story begins with an alien abduction. Georgie, a woman from my hometown of Orlando, Florida, finds herself on the examination table of the ever-iconic Little Green Men. When our captors see that she's awake, they drug her again, and the next time she wakes up, she finds that she's been cramped into a cell with a number of other women. There's also a few women in stasis chambers in a wall, and they all have a few things in common. First, no health problems, far away from their family, and they are all 22 years old. Oh, and none of them are pregnant, except for one, and that was apparently um, solved by their captors. Forced abortion was not on my bingo card today, but damn if that doesn't unsettle me. There's more that goes on in the cargo hold of these smugglers, but I don't want to linger on it too much, and I will just say that if you haven't read the story yet, consider all the trigger warnings. We are able to establish some of our characters here, at least a couple. There's Liz, the first woman who reaches out to Georgie when she wakes up from the drugs, and we've got Kira, who was the first woman brought on board, and she's received a translator in her ear for that privilege. 
she is more or less able to describe what she hears from the aliens, but there's not really any communication between the women and their captors. There are a few others, but Liz and Kira are probably the most important to the plot. I would not have minded a sort of snapshot of Georgie's life before she was abducted to give us context for just how badly we've uprooted this woman. I might have an idea, but that's only because I'm actually from the area and I understand the special kind of hell that is living in Orlando. So she's 22, likely in some form of hospitality occupation and possibly struggling to make ends meet. Because of the suggestion that she's not near other members of her family, I could theorize that she's a recent transplant to Florida, which might indicate that she came here either for college or one of the theme park college programs. Any non-Orlando Floridians that I knew when I lived there was overwhelmingly in the Disney college program, or they moved down specifically to get a job at Disney or the other theme parks. I mean, come on, it's why my family moved to Florida. Like I said, I have a context that a lot of folks reading these books don't, so I get to have a little fun extrapolating things that probably don't need to be extrapolated. All I'm saying is, I want to be able to relate to Georgie, and I would have liked to have seen what the situation was when she was abducted. How much did she lose when she was taken? And how much she would have been glad to leave behind? Georgie takes up a sort of leadership role with these women, surprising since she's the newcomer. She's already starting to plot a way to get control of the situation, to get weapons from the guards, and hopefully fly themselves back home. Unfortunately, their escape attempt is greatly overshadowed by engine trouble, and the cargo bay is jettisoned in order to keep from totally crashing. Thanks to Kira, they know that the aliens drop them off in a safe location, with the intention of picking them up later. The trouble is, is that the safe location turns out to be a frozen wasteland that the women dub Not Hoth. I... Might have thought that they would eventually have come up with a different name for this planet, but nope, not Hoth, as far as I know, is the official name throughout the series. Being the main or, or um, plucky and the least injured of the women, Georgie decides to set out to get help if she can find it. It's not quite immediately, but one of the first things that happens is that Georgie nearly gets eaten by a giant river monster, and then she gets caught in a trap set by one of the natives. That is how we meet Vectal, and that is where things get interesting. To get it out of the way, the inhabitants of this planet have to take on this parasite or symbiote called a kui, which bonds to them through their heart and enables them to filter out the gases that make living impossible on the planet. I use the word parasite because it's probably the best way I can describe it without context, but they would disagree with me on my use of the term. What's more, the kui resonate when the natives meet their perfect genetic partner, i.e. this will be the individual with whom they will be able to procreate with. If there is no Kui resonance between partners, then pregnancy is physically impossible. So Vectal stumbles on this strange creature in his trap, determines that it's female, and is shocked when his Kui resonates. I should note that Georgie is unconscious at this point. She passed out when the blood rushed to her head after getting caught in his trap. The Kui is a deus ex machina. Plain and simple. This is basically the faded mates trope with an alien twist. Without the Kui, what follows is going to be horrifying. But because we get the, um, let's call it the comfort, the comfort of the Kui, we know that it's going to be more or less okay. It's really hard to say how I f really feel about the faded mates trope. 
On one hand, there is a compelling story in trying to reconcile that a certain individual is perfect for you when you didn't ask for it in the first place. And on the other, is it really consensual when you don't have a choice beyond fate? I think it's a distinction left for personal interpretation from reader to reader, and even from story to story. If we take the shifters of the Beaumont from Susanna Allen, I think it's a humorous way to approach fated mates because we get it wrapped up in the Regency rules and rituals of the Marriage Mart versus, let's say, the imprinting wolves in the Twilight series featuring the worst cases of fated mates that I have ever personally seen. Here, we're getting giant blue-horned aliens who resonate with their perfect genetic partner. So let's be honest, it could be worse. Vectel takes Georgie to his hunting cave and evaluates what he's dealing with here. He lifts open her eyes, which can apparently tell him that she has no cooey of their own, I think it makes her eyes glow, and undresses her to see if there are any injuries. The eye is underneath, white, dull. There is no cooey inside her, or if there was, it is dead. She will need to be treated as if a child, then. I make a fire quickly and wait for it to warm her. And because my curiosity has the best of me, I examine her. I tell myself it is simply to determine if she is wounded, but my mind sings with curiosity, my cooey vibrating within my chest with this song that is growing greater with every possible moment. She is making me resonate. She is... Mine. He finishes taking off all her clothes because, of course, he does. And all the while, his cooey is basically yelling at him to get on with it already. He agrees and decides that the best course of action is to give Georgie some oral pleasure. I'll. I'd like to remind you, Georgie is still unconscious. <laughs> Not for long, though. Since Vectel's uh, greeting is more than enough to wake her up. And this is where I thought I was going to encounter my biggest hang-up of this whole story. My biggest worry, the alien dick, if it were. Georgie is certainly concerned, but I guess Vectel is so good at eating her out that she promptly stops caring, or simply just doesn't have the energy to spare to care. The language here is pretty descriptive, which does surprise me a little bit, especially when it comes to Vectel's perspective. Y yes, I haven't really mentioned this novel is written in the first person, both from Georgie's point of view as well as Vectel's. It's not really my favorite for romance novels, but I don't mind it here. It's crucial to be able to get Vectel's full thoughts for our peace of mind. Otherwise, we've got no fucking clue what's going on, and we're not going to stop seeing Vectel as a threat. I was ready for lots of alien jargon for the body bits, but nope. Vectel uses cock and pussy just the way we would expect the humans to use. The most hilarious part of this scene is that apparently the women of Vectel species don't have clits the way that human women do, but he finds Georgie's and knows immediately what it's for. Like, he figures it out pretty quick. This right here is where we are putting the fiction into the science fiction of this erotica. The alien doesn't even know what a clit is or what it does, but he still figures it out and gives Georgie a mind-blowing orgasm. It is incredible, and I am here for it. 
Human men have no goddamn excuse anymore. Vectala wants to go all the way now, but Georgie's self-preservation finally grabs a hold of her again, and she very firmly makes her objection known. And he's not even mad at her, he's just confused. As she hits him, we get the scene that firmly puts Vectal in the we-can-trust-him camp. She immediately goes quiet, flinching backward, her hands raised to shield herself. I am sickened at her reaction. This woman, this small creature who has half the stature of a Sakui, is my mate. How can she possibly think I would harm her? But she is cringing back even now, as if expecting a blow to fall. Rage fills me because this is not a normal response. Someone has hurt my mate in the past. Yes. All of it. Yes. We have a language barrier here, obviously. Georgie did not immediately object to his attentions, but when she laid out her boundaries, she used the only language that she could, physical touch. Thanks to her experience as an alien abductee, the words that she used were pretty damn loud. Vectal does not respond in violence or anger. He is a reasonable person and can immediately put two and two together. He understands that her reaction isn't logical to him, but logical to her, and he respects that. He figures out that she does not feel the same resonance that he does and backs the fuck off. It's devastating to him since it's clear that she does not have a kui and he knows that she will die without one but he is not discouraged and gives Georgie that space that she asks for. And that is where I really bought into this novel. My skepticism has fully flown the coop, and I suspect that other new readers might have felt the same. There is some I, Tarzan, you, Jane pantomiming here, and it's charming enough that I'm already sold on the two of them. The funny part is being that Georgie is the Tarzan in this analogy. We don't even get perfect names either. Vectal and Georgie slowly learn how to communicate and to say each other's words and names, and no one magically learns someone else's language. That doesn't happen until later. <laughs> and, uh, Georgie comes across an old ship that basically grants her the ability to speak Vectal's language. It's more of the deuce ex machina stuff going on. I mean, it's, it's a romance. We need our characters to be able to talk to each other. But even before Georgie is able to fully understand Vectal, they are still able to cooperate and find ways to communicate with each other. It also features a little bit of a lore dump. We get some basic info about the planet, such as its yearly cycle and how Vectal's people came to Nothoff. That was interesting, because the Sakui seemed so ingrained into the landscape. They have rituals, philosophies, all surrounding their presence on the planet. And in a way, it almost reminds me of the Dragon Riders of Pern. The Sakui have crash-landed on this planet when their pleasure cruise hit a solar storm, and from that moment, it was a race to survive. Not only did they have to survive more than these hostile conditions, but they also had to figure out that the Kui would save their lives. Compare this with the Dragon Riders, who have landed on a planet with a hostile element, the thread from the Red Star, and they then had to learn how to work with and adapt the native animals to protect themselves. Even though they were a spacefaring and technologically advanced people, 
they pretty much lost all of their knowledge and live a pre-industrial life and experience. I am not going to sit here and accuse the author of ripping off Pernt because that is not true. These are very different stories. I just wanted to point out the similarities between the world building, and that is not really unheard of for a technologically advanced people to completely lose their knowledge in pursuit of survival. And speaking of survival, I want to point out that Georgie's arrival, along with the other women, means the Sakui have a glimmer of hope. You see, their numbers are dwindling. They've been struggling to stay alive, and few people are resonating especially considering that there aren't many women left to resonate with the unpartnered men. And here comes Vectal, carrying a strange-looking alien, declaring that he has resonated with her, that they have mated, and there's more of the women. Oh, poor Georgie. She thinks that she's been having a fun romp in the furs, happily under the assumption that Vectal can't get her pregnant, because, you know, different species. And whoops, when she finds out how a Kui resonance only happens when a child can be made, she understandably loses her mind just a little bit. If you were worried that these women were about to find themselves on the menu, fear not. Potential genetic rescue aside, we get reassurance that nothing will go down without their consent. No one is being mated without their agreement, I say, crossing my arms. Then I wince because I keep forgetting that my one wrist is total shit. It is agreed, my Georgie, Bechtel says. He caresses my cheek again. I am the chief. They will listen to me. Any male who wishes to mate a human woman must have her agreement. I relax a bit at that. Agreement? Rahush sputters. But resonance? doesn't happen for humans, I say sweetly. I'm pretty down for this. The tribe is maybe a little shell-shocked when Georgie insists that humans are allowed to choose their partners, but they also respect that cultural difference. Well, Vectal does anyway, and since they look to him as the leader, they follow suit without too much complaining. And it's not a huge roadblock anyway. I mean, come on, when life partnering is happening on a literal biological level. Hard to say no thanks when there's a genuine genetic need being shouted from the symbiont now living in your literal heart. As the Sakui follows Vectal's lead, the women follow Georgie's lead as well, accepting the Kui into their hearts, and we watch as potential partnerings begin to line up. For the moment, all is well, and things look like they're going to turn all right for our group of diasporated women. I know that diasporated is not a proper use of the word, but I don't care. I'm using it. Like I said at the beginning, this is a special edition of Ice Planet Barbarians, so it comes with not one, but two epilogues. I'll just mention them here without getting into them, but know that I did read them, and I did like them. Without the epilogues, the story just kind of ends... At least, that's the impression that I get, and that might be a side effect of putting aside the epilogues. I'm not 100% sure that the first epilogue was written and published with the original novel, and the second one definitely wasn't, since it contains spoilers for the second novel, so I'm kind of treating both as if they were separate. I did have some expectations when I picked up Ice Planet Barbarians. I thought it would be silly at best convoluted or possibly rapey at worst, but I am delighted to report that I had genuine fun reading this novel. And I think that's the benefit of writing something with the fantasy or science fiction genre, because we already have suspended our disbelief when it comes to the plot. 
this is already ridiculous, so we get a little bit more leeway when it comes to what we'll tolerate in the narrative. Yes, the first meeting between Georgie and Bechtel is eh, questionable. I mean, he did give her oral sex without her consent, but once she figured out what was going on, she wasn't saying no. Her internal monologue even says that she should object, but she wasn't particularly keen to end the pleasure. But every moment thereafter, consent is pretty clearly defined, and nothing happens without either partner agreeing to it. And considering that the novel has Barbarian in the title, I'm happy with what we've got. And to see what else what we were given, it is time for Heather's final score. First up, our cover, and that is a 5 out of 5, hands down. It is everything that I want to cover. It is not some cheesy Photoshop monstrosity. It is beautifully composed and looks absolutely gorgeous. I give huge props to our artist because it did exactly what it was supposed to and lured me in. Next, we've got romance, and that's going to be a 3 out of 5. It's pretty difficult to construct a romance between two literal aliens with a language barrier over a week. Had it not been for the Kui resonance, our two characters would have likely never hooked up, let alone fall in love. There's not a lot to build on here. Having said that, however, Bechtel's total devotion to Georgie and her people is pretty endearing and does a lot to carry this romance. His attention slowly went over her, even before she's magically gifted with his language. The two are drawn to each other, and I'm pretty okay with it. Drama is going to be a 4 out of 5. The only thing that holds the score back is time. Everything happens and is resolved so quickly that we really barely have any time to settle down with each new plot point. The only thing that gets the proper time allowance, I think, is the danger of the environment. Georgie and all of the other women will die without a Kui. We are watching them degrade before our eyes, and a great deal of Vectel's energy is spent trying to resolve that problem. Georgie has to contend with accepting the symbiote, or possibly trying to overtake the alien abductors to get back home somehow when they return, and whatever she chooses affects every other woman stranded on Not Hawk. This seems to get resolved pretty quickly for such a hard choice. But we also have to consider that had it not been for the pressure of Kui or death, they may not have decided as quickly as they did. As for Spice, that is a 5 out of 5. This novel is not straying away from the sex at all, which I'm pretty chill with. Then again, there's not a lot of big differences between Sa Kui and human men, or at least not enough to bother me personally. And can we talk about how Georgie is different enough from Sakui women? It's enough to give Vectel a runaround, but he rolls with whatever she's got. I mean, he doesn't even know what a clit is. He calls it a third nipple when he explains it to the other men, but that does not stop him from being a fantastic lover. He knows what's up, and he is enthusiastic in making sure Georgie is satisfied in every way. And as usual, we are switching out realism for world building when it comes to fantastical novels like this, and honestly, I'm going to give it a 5 out of 5. The author has obviously given a lot of thought of how this world works. There are creatures other than the Sakui on Nothoth, a vivid icy landscape, and we even get some of the mechanics of the planet when Georgie stumbles on that language-granting ship. This isn't just, oh, they landed on some cold ice planet, you don't need more than that. Care was taken here, and given how many novels follow Ice Planet Barbarians, the care has paid off in dividends. Not once did I think that something was weak or it could have been planned better. Even my skepticism around the Kui, it really wasn't related to the world building. Its placement in the heart is not only symbolic, but also logical. 
the gases on Nothoth are fatal, and it makes sense that the Kui filter them out from the blood. The genetic partner thing is a little more flimsy, but I'm willing to let that slide all the way off because it's not the worst demonstration of that particular mechanic. So where does this all leave us? While all of the scores could have landed way lower, and that really wouldn't have mattered in the end because I had fun. I loved reading this book from front to back. I enjoyed the epilogues, annoyed that I had left them for later and ended up not being able to get to them for a couple of days. On top of that, I want more. Yes, it's a silly book about aliens boinking stranded human women, but it's executed in such a way that it was genuinely enjoyable and not at all creepy. So in the end, that's what matters for me. I had fun and I already want to run out and buy the next book. So I've got no reservations in giving Ice Planet Barbarians a spot on the coveted gold star shelf with a five surprise alien rescuers out of five. Thank you for joining me, readers and romance seekers, and I hope to see you once again for Hopelessly Romantic. If you like the show, please visit us at hopelesslyromanticpodcast.com. If you have questions or want to recommend a read, please email us at contact at hopelesslyromanticpodcast.com. The show is written and produced by me, Heather Songster. Our technical advisor is Kwang Yun Cho. Hopelessly Romantic is an H with K production. And it doesn't matter what you read, only that it's what you love. <laughs>